to Tone Renders, the Sound Designers podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Dustin, Timothy, and Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. Also with us today are Frank Bree and Charles Maines. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Hi. Hello from Idaho. Frank is a prolific field recordist for his company, TheRecordist.com, and he's recently been the sound designer for THQ's Supreme Commander, Microsoft's Dungeon Siege series, Bioware's Neverwinter Nights, and Nintendo's Metroid Prime series. Charles Maines is also a prolific Hollywood field recordist. His work in Hollywood spans more than 15 years, and his credits include Tomb Raider, Knight's Tale, All the Pretty Horses, U571, Bait, Spider-Man, and many, many more. Charles is one of Hollywood's go-to men for weapon and explosive recordings. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Dustin is at Pulse Train. Frank is at Idaho underscore Recordist. And Charles is at C Mains. There would be comments, except we're doing this pretty quickly after the release of the last one. So there's no comments today. So today's show is a nice round table with some of the best in the business about field recording weapons and explosives. So in addition to having Frank and Charles with us, we also did a little email interview with Watson Wu. Watson Wu is also a field recorder. He specializes in weaponry vehicles and hard to find exotic muscle cars. He's been around since 2001 and some of his selected credits are Assassin's Creed 3, the Needs for Speed franchise, Transformers War for Cybertron, Operation Flashpoint, Dragon Rising, Warhawk, and many other games. The other person involved in this roundtable is Axel Rohrbach from Boom Library. Tim, why don't you tell us about him? Well, Axel lives in Germany, and English is a second language. He's one of the partners with Boom Library, as well as the sound designer at Dynamidian. So what he did was we sent him some questions ahead of time, and uh, he answered them for us, and so we'll roll on those. So uh, the first question we asked him was, uh, how did he get into sound design to begin with? Here's what Axel had to say. I started having music lessons when I was four years old. My parents have a music school, so it was very easy for me to get access to all kinds of lessons, workshops and instruments. Not always voluntarily, though. My musical way was straight. I had classical piano lessons all my life and some additional instrument lessons, band lessons, composition workshops, etc. Until I started to study in the Netherlands. I studied music technologies in Enschede. After that, I applied at Dynamedia and started there as a composer, but pretty quickly found out that I do have much more fun in doing sound design. So, Frank, let's start with you. Can you give us a little more background on, on how you started into sound design as well? My background prior to sound design was in music. Uh, I was a bass player and a, and a composer. And um, when I uh, moved to Seattle in, in uh, my late 20s, which is the late 80s, I had uh, uh, emu sampling keyboard and i had started recording my own sounds into it and experimenting with all the things you can do with laying right across the keyboard and after arriving in seattle uh, i met some other emulator 3 owners and we started hanging out and they were in the commercial uh, broadcast industry and they just asked me one day one of them just said you know do you do sound design and i said yeah and uh, <laughs> it was kind of like, okay. So he hired me for a couple of days. And after that, the word, word got out in Seattle that there was a sound designer in town. And I really had no idea what I was doing. But, you know, the sampler made me look good. You know, real big and heavy and 
showed up with this huge case <laughs> and you fired it up and you had 45 megabytes of sounds. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's how I got my start. And then from then on, I just recorded everything I could and learned just by doing and got into games. How long ago was that? That was, uh, um, I started recording, like the first sound effect I ever recorded was probably in 1984, where I just kind of dropped a glass once in front of a microphone. And I really didn't mean to do it. I think I was doing a session. I was putting some background vocals on something I was doing. And I dropped a glass and it got recorded. And uh, I played it back. And I was like, whoa, sound effects. This is better than what I was doing before. So that's kind of where it all came from. And it just kind of snowballed into getting into games and, and then into doing libraries. Cool. It just keeps going. Frank, do you still write music? When I sleep in my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, uh, I just got back into it. You know, I, I have to put music in my videos that I make these little trailer videos for my sound libraries. And um, I started just kind of messing around with loops again, and which I used to do a lot with my emu. Um, back in the day where you really couldn't even see a waveform, you just kind of went by feel. And uh, yeah, I've kind of gotten back into it, but I don't know why I don't do it more, I guess, because I really love it. It's my first passion. Nice. Charles, what about you? How'd you get started? Um, gosh, very similar to Frank, really coming from the music side of things. Actually, in about 1982, I got into the Emulator 2 and again, kind of like Frank, traveled from music into doing sound effects, uh, using that pretty much as a vehicle. Did you get into weapon recording early on? No, the first weapons uh, work I did was for the film Starship Troopers, which was in 1997. I hadn't even shot a gun up to that point, actually. And um, just to see where all of that kind of led to today is, is always kind of humorous. Yeah, I, I was exactly the same way. I had recorded guns before I'd ever actually held one in my hand and shot one. Uh-huh. And I had never actually been in the vicinity of a real live firearm going off until after I'd attempted to record one. And it was so different from my perception of what they were from television and film. It was, it was pretty shocking to me how concussive they were. Oh, yeah. It's just impossible to actually capture it and reproduce it you know, in a way that that's like how it really is. Right. What's kind of interesting, I actually spoke with a um, noted sound designer who does a lot of uh, gun work lately, um, who I'm going to leave unnamed, but he's, you, you've probably certainly seen his work if you've been following the films lately. But he was talking about gun recording and how um, he thought that I might have a suggestion for one microphone that could get like the sound that, you know, we all kind of, look for with you know lows and highs and details and reverb and everything else and i just told him you know i think that pretty much you're seeing the same thing i do and i just simply take a whole bunch of mics out and put them all over the place to get the different aspects of the sound i need and then combine those sounds to whatever sound quality i need for a particular scene yeah that's that's how i feel about loud sounds as well too it's just so impossible to catch it with just one mic which leads us to an interesting question that we asked Axel also, like, which is about your Desert Island four-channel recording rig. So if you've got four channels of audio and you need to record a rifle, which mics are you taking with you? Um, so let's start out. Let's hear what Axel had to say. He actually didn't answer it in context of a rifle. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's easy. Sound devices 744T and a 552 for the mic inputs, mostly because I know the 744T pretty well. I would take two DPA 407s in hammerhead configuration in a blimp and a Sennheiser 8050 plus Sennheiser MKH34MS stereo recordings. This would be a pretty flexible setup in my opinion. Depending on the island and what there is to record at all, some condoms, of course, only for underwater recordings might be needed. <laughs> Uh, so, Frank, Charles, what do you guys think? Four channels, desert island recording setup. Um, I think Frank's going to give a much more interesting answer. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. What? Uh, no, a couple. I have these couple old Radio Shack mics. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I would actually, I use uh, Sound Device 702, so I would take a pair of those, because that's what I have, and uh, sync lock them up. I would take a pair of MKH 8040s that I really love. I would take my MKH-416, and then it's really a toss-up between my Sanken CSS-5 or my AT-835ST, which is Audio-Technica, which is really not a great mic for other things, but it gets a great transient uh, out of a gun, but I'd probably go with the CSS-5. Uh, those are the four mics, but that's actually five channels because the CSS-5 can do stereo. Ah. Uh. But I could use it in mono, so I'm cheating. It's four. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that is in the context of, of a rifle, right? Yeah, th those are the four. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Charles, what do you think? You ready for me? Hit me. Um, I would 744 uh, sound devices, like everybody else, pretty much. Uh, Frank, with the 702s, is in the same hardware league. Um, I would go with mono mics. I would take a Crown PZM, a Sennheiser 416, Probably an SM57 and a Sheps Mark IV with an um, Omni capsule. That'd be for the verb? Uh, well, it would just depend on how the environment presented itself. Um, Ken Johnson, when he did the Dynamic Range series, used, in essence, basically just the Sheps and the PZMs to get the results he did. And I think that he's, you know, aside from Frank, probably one of the best gun recordists to have done any work in the field. Yeah, that library is really, really, really well done. And especially for its day, I mean, it's and it's still usable to this day. Tim, what would you take? Uh, well, I'm actually interesting, well, I'm uninteresting in this conversation. This is why I wanted to set it up, because I've never recorded guns before. So uh, I'm just soaking this all in. I want to learn, because uh, it's something that I've always wanted to do, but I haven't done yet. So uh, I'm really interested in what everybody's got to say. Dustin, what do you think? Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the same boat. I've never done weapon recording, but it's interesting to me that uh, that question. There are certain things that you just kind of inherently know, and you know the sound devices either seven hundred two, seven forty four, something of that ilk. Of course, a four sixteen. Of course, you know some kind of omni something or other. Maybe a fifty seven. It's like I know that stuff. I don't necessarily know how to apply it in that context. But and that that actually leads me to a question. I'm curious, Frank and and Charles, how much of your weapon recording is you know your science and experience, and how much is just experimentation each time you go out? I usually just call Charles a couple of days before. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Charles. That's funny. Well, like I said, I think Frank's doing probably some of the nicest work out there right now, and I would say there's a good chance I would call him even in lieu of going out myself on a lot of these things. Um, the stuff he's gotten out of the, the Sennheiser 8000 series, I think, is just outstanding. Yeah, for sure. 
otherwise, I mean, for for the most part, I, I do kind of have a basic template I use. I with the four sixteens, for instance, I use those in the Road NTG3s and put them pretty close to the guns. And then the, I use a Crown SAS, which is the stereo PZMs, which I know Frank also uses. Um, and usually drop those behind the weapons, probably about 20 to 25 feet, and then also have a bunch of other stuff, including the CSS-5 and the Rode NT4 and BP-88, and sometimes even take holophones out. One of the very first gun recordings, actually the very first gun recording I did, I, I printed out and referenced an article that you wrote, Charles, for Gamasutra. Oh, uh-huh. You wrote a very detailed article with a very detailed basic gun template setup that you had at that time, I guess. And, you know, it was a 416. It was, I think it was, you know, a couple of, you know, I forget exactly what the exact layout was, but it was about six or eight channels. And with all the various caveats of, you know, location and weapon dependent and all of that stuff. But basically I took that as, as the Bible and, and went out there to my recording setup and set it up. And I got some good stuff, especially for my first time out ever doing it. But I didn't get stuff that I felt sounded like Hollywood yet, right? And I think, to a large degree, that was because I was trying to go off of someone else's method. And I didn't understand your method at that point, right? So my second gun shoot, I totally trashed it and, and went for something entirely differently. What I did was I, I tried to break the gun sound up into parts and bring the mics out and place the mics in a place where I could capture each of the individual parts. So I had a lav on the, on the actual shooter for the mechanical part. I had a thump mic, basically, you know, like a large diaphragm dynamic mic to capture a lot of the low end. And then I had other mics that were out there. I had a blast mic for the blasty part, and I had, I think, maybe four or six channels just for reverberation that I put way out in the field, just omni, like way out far away. And, um, and I got way better results, and it was because I kind of, I did think of it scientifically, and I did try and think of it logically, but also because I, I more thoroughly understood what it was that I was trying to do, as opposed to trying to mimic something that someone else was trying to do, even though, you know, your method worked for you for, for what you were describing. It wasn't working for me as well as what I ended up doing on my own, because I had a deeper kind of rationale behind it as opposed to going off of a template. I, I mean, I was going to say, I think a lot of it has to do with the kind of sound you're going after and crafting the actual setup yeah. to accommodate that. I know for most gun recordings that I get called to do, you know, it's like they want something that they can actually have good, tight, re clean recordings that they can then process after the fact to take into what I would call Hollywood realm. So it, it is a little different. I mean, if you're trying to get the sound of, say, heat, you know, doing that in the desert is not going to happen. Right. You need to do it in, in a space where you have a lot of reflections and things like that. But it, it just really goes to show how different the, you know, the, the mindsets are and what you're figuring out what exactly your end objective is. Because, you know, if you go to a place that's very reverberant and you need something that's very tight, it's kind of impossible to remove the reverb. For sure. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I think, yeah, I definitely think, um, I agree with Charles. It is for a specific need or for a specific style. And um, I also think that location is really important. And uh, 
where I live, I, I've shot in like four or five different locations. I've shot on the, you know, at 4,000 feet um, above sea level off a cliff. Uh, I've shot in my front yard and I've shot in gravel pits, very tight, surrounded by trees. And you get really different sounds in locations. And, but I got to tell you, microphone, some microphones are really important. You know, uh, I took a, um idea from Charles where you stick a 416 like right on it. And because it's a shotgun mic, it basically records the mechanics of the gun. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing a lot lately. And you can do that with an 8040 also or an 8060. I usually, it's just me out there with a shooter. So I don't have other people 250 meters away or whatever running recorders. So I don't do a lot of distance stuff. Um, that's very far away. Most of my stuff is, you know, h- however far my 50-year-old legs will take me. So, <laughs> you know, that's about, a, and, and cables. It's usually about 75 to 100 feet away is like my farthest microphone. So, but location is really, really key to getting the sound you want. Yeah, I completely also. agree. I mean, it's, you know, when you're talking about loud, concussive elements, I mean, to a large degree, you're not recording the weapon itself. You're recording what that weapon sounds like in space. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really it's it's interesting. I've done some great recordings with just my 8040 ST rig. I mean, just because sometimes it's I'm backpacking up into the mountains or I'm riding this three-wheeler, tagging along with some guys who want to go shoot some guns in a great place, and it's just me and one, one stereo mic and may, maybe a little handheld recorder like a PCMD50 or something. And you can get good results with one mic, especially if you're with someone who wants to shoot a lot of rounds, because then you can move around and get 10 shots over here, 10 shots over here. Yeah, that's kind of like, you can do it with multi-mics. My multi-mic sessions confuse the heck out of me. I throw them in Pro Tools and I go, okay, what's that? What's that one supposed to do? What's that one supposed to do? And then, you know, it all comes together later. But Yeah, I've actually had a similar experience with regards to a single mic, not with weapons, but with baseball bat hits. Yes. Which are very similar, right? I found myself at the ballpark in Arlington during batting practice with one mic once, and they were not playing music, which was very rare. That almost never happens that they'll do batting practice and not play music. Right. And I just had a 416. I basically did that exact same thing. I aimed it at, at the guy for, you know, about 10 hits, and then I aimed it at this part of the stadium for 10 hits and that part, and, you know, I just aimed it all around. I'd pick different spots and aim it at different places. Mm-hmm. And then in post, just line it all up, and all of a sudden it sounds like this big, beautiful bat hit. Yeah, and with the mic you had, you know, that was probably the best choice, actually. Yeah, it was, it was an ENG rig. I was there to record dialogue, so yeah. I wasn't there to record that exact batting session, but... That ended up that that's my go-to hit now. Like when I'm doing, I know what a I know what a four sixteen can do, and I, I also have the newer eighty sixty, which sounds a lot like it. It goes it goes a little higher in the higher frequency range, and it's got quite a bit more thump to it. Yeah, but that's great. I'm finding that's great on guns. You stick that half a meter away from behind the muzzle of a gun, and you get a really nice thump. I did some suppressed two two three caliber stuff on the cliffs with it, and it's the best sounding mic there. I, I don't know how that happened, but I listen to it and I go, okay, that's what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah, so that's my new that's my new fave. Charles, what do you do with the PZMs? Like, how close do you get to the weapons with that? What are you, What are you looking for with the PZMs? Ken Johnson first turned me on to them, and how he would work with them is, you know, basically taking a regular Crown 30D or something and putting it onto a piece of plywood, 
and using that as a boundary mic so that he could kind of get the low end from the gun that the other mics really wouldn't get. And for whatever reason, with the, the SAS, it, it has a sound that, it, at least to my ear, is really similar to the kind of performance that we used to get from the Nagra tape recorders using the Shaps, where it would, it would have a scoopiness to it, where it seemed like the mid-range would evaporate as the signal level got very loud. And it, it really kind of enhanced the really upper end, somewhere in the ballpark of like 6 to 10K. And then in the lower end, it would make this nearly kind of quasi-distorted wave shape kind of sound. Hmm. And I just find it terrifically satisfying as a thickening layer for just about anything. That's cool. I have little bitty crown PZMs that I haven't used in that context yet. And I'm kind of chomping at the bit to do so because I did use them in that context for my motorcycle. I recorded my motorcycle's pipes and basically I took a, it's not a stereo PZM, just a flat PZM, uh, but a nice crown one and taped it to the license plate, which is right by the pipes. And I got all my low end from that. It just sounded killer. So definitely I'm chomping at the bit to take those out and get some weapons with them. Yeah, they're really nice. I mean, it's, it's not a sound that you can use as your full sound, but it gives a lovely component. Nice. We're talking about context, right? And, you know, the, the comment that you made earlier about designing your rig for what you're trying to do in the context of what you're shooting, do you feel you do have to kind of design your recordings per the actual context on the front end? Well, I mean, you know, guns by their very nature are kind of similar to one another. It's really just a matter of how big the ammunition you're shooting is. So, you know, that's going to really dictate how close you put your mics and how much, in essence, the environment is going to be excited into giving you the reverb and echoes that you might be looking for or looking to avoid. Like, I guess the question is more, how useful do you feel library weapons are versus specific gun shoots for a specific film scene? Well, I, I, it's one of those things where basically a 9 millimeter pistol, for the most part, is going to sound like any other 9 millimeter pistol. Um, there's very few defining characteristics where you could, you, know, you could hear that recording and say, oh, well, that's, that's a SIG pistol or that's a Glock or that's a Browning or some other thing. Right. In, in fact, the recordist I was talking to uh, earlier, who I, <laughs> I'm not going to name, has, is, is putting together a gun shoot, and he had three 9mm pistols that he was planning on recording. And I suggested, well, you know, what you might want to do, because you want to have some difference in sound here, is, you know, record a 45, a 40, and then a 9mm, and then you'll have three different pistol sounds that will allow your characters to have a certain geography and identifiability that otherwise would probably be difficult to sell with the original recordings if they were all the same caliber. Right. As we talk more about locations, because I think locations are so key to all of it, we asked Axel at Boom also, what criteria do you look for when you're picking a location? Here's what Axel had to say. The most important thing here is that the spot is accessible. You might have found the best location ever. If you cannot get there with your equipment or it is closed for other reasons, you cannot record there. Second thing is that the area should be as remote as possible. No bigger or smaller airports around, no busy streets, no fields that are getting harvested or other shooters that can shoot nearby, which makes it more complicated to be accessible. Third, but as important as the other points, of course, is the sound of the spot. The delays of a location are extremely important for gun sound. 
so it should be carefully thought about if you want clean guns, a dense heart and short sound, a long smooth tail, etc. This mainly depends on what you are recording the guns for. And I'm completely with him on that. Accessibility is the trickiest thing for me. The hardest thing for me with regards to gun recording is finding a place to shoot them that I have total access to. And then secondarily to that is what it sounds like once I find a place. Frank, what do you think? Uh, I think it's actually um, really, really important that you definitely are in, in the right spot. I mean, you can have a few annoyances here and there in which they're... I mean, even here in Idaho, when I was up at 4,000 feet recording at these cliffs, I mean, the, uh, a seaplane took off. And because we were so high, he was only really uh, probably three or 400 feet above us. And of course, seaplanes are just extremely loud. I mean, they've got this huge, massive prop, and, and so it takes a long time. So e even here in remote North Idaho, sometimes I have to wait for some sort of disturbance. But yeah, accessibility is really key. And uh, I, I've been fortunate enough where I have the pick of like four or five different places. And uh, so I can test things out and uh, find out where the best sound I'm going to get for what I'm looking for. When I recorded the Tommy gun, it was a small little gravel pit that had all these high trees around it. And because the gun really, I mean, it's kind of loud, but not that loud, but it's not like the M60 where it hits you in the chest. But I thought that environment where that gun would be used, I mean, it sounds like a city, kind of. It didn't have these long, ricocheting echoes that were coming back six seconds later. It was a very highly diffused, almost street-sounding. So uh, I did, you know, I specifically chose to record there. But a lot of times, for me, it's... Where do I want to go today, and can I get there? So, uh, and and can I get the shooter to go there with me? So, uh, and we have beautiful, beautiful echoes up here. It's yes. not it's not flat here, at all. Yeah, my first gun shoot. I think some of my issues that I had more than anything was the fact that I was in West Texas on the plains and it was just flat. <laughs> and so when they fired those guns, it, nothing came back. It all just went into space and disappeared. Well, you know, you can actually do some really great stuff with not having... Sometimes when I'm recording stuff, I wish I didn't have things coming back. You know, it all depends on your application then again. So when I was at this cliff location, it, it took six or seven seconds for the echo before you actually heard the echo afterwards. So you there was this huge gap between the report from it and... Uh, it was perfect for the suppressed stuff that I did up there because I was able to get that just, just the suppressed sound yeah, without having this huge flash of reverb right afterwards. And uh, definitely, um, and, and like Charles says, um, yeah, a lot of the guns sound the same. I mean, I, I have the recording of a um, Barrett 98B, and we went out with a, a Remington 700, which is, you know, it's a, with a 300 Weatherby. And I have these recordings, and I'm like, I thought I tagged them wrong because they both sounded identical. Huh. I mean, they were really not. They were really not that much different, even though the Barrett's got this really long barrel. And um, yeah, I would record many different calibers of stuff because you definitely get different sounds. I'll just uh, jump in as a proxy for uh, Watson Wu. As we mentioned earlier, he uh, sent in some answers for us, and what he had an interesting idea for how he looks for locations. And he said that whenever he comes across a potential quiet location to record at, he'll go out with a test shooter. This is without any microphones. 
and he'll stand behind the shooter using his fingers to cover his ears. And after each shot, the second the shot's done, he releases his fingers from his ears so he can concentrate on the echoes and the uh, reverberations. And that's how he kind of helps his mind distinguish between the initial shot and what the uh, follow-up will be. And he repeats that process until he finds the right spot. And then he comes back later with the uh, mics and everything, having already done that test ahead of time. Do uh, Charles, do you do any pre-testing like that? Um, as much as we can. Uh, I mean, for me, actually, I mean, Axel's comments were certainly good. But in my experience, the first thing I want to be rid of is insects and birds, if it ever possible. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Shoot in the winter. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in California, we really don't have an adequate winter. I do a lot of shooting in Nevada, which has basically almost no insects in the desert and very few birds. Aircraft, if you're anywhere in your cities, you're, there's no way to really avoid them. So yep. you kind of have to just dodge around them on your shoot. But as far as actually you know, doing test fires and everything else, Absolutely. I mean, you know, in many instances, I'll actually try to um, arrange for a shoot to go two days so that we could do two independent setups, redoing the work, but in a different location. I mean, since the weapons costs are going to be the same, you know, we basically just have the labor cost of the armorers and myself. And the end result is basically two sets of weapons as opposed to one. So when you're scouting a location, what are you looking for specifically? On setting up the shoot itself, I'll always ask you know, the client, well, what sort of sound are you looking to get? And if they want something that's like a reverberant kind of mountainous sound with big reverbs, you know, I'll try to basically accommodate that with the location choice. If they don't want a big reverb sound, then that dictates an entirely different place. But you know, I've got about six locations I typically use, one down by the Mexican border. Um, I have one up in the Bakersfield area near north Los Angeles. And then um, I've got multiple locations in Nevada that I like to use. And, and you like the kind of big, flat desert sound just, for, just to get tightness, just to get, I guess, flexibility? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. In Nevada, the site that we probably use the most is up in the hills at a, um, an abandoned, or it's not abandoned. It's actually a functioning strip mine that we actually block out the, the strip miners for the day. Huh. So we have all sorts of really nice cutouts in different environments, everything that would allow for a tight city kind of sound all the way out to a, a more sprawling echo by shooting across the valley. It's interesting with me, I'd never really understood the way trees sounded, the way trees are very kind of diffuse and reverberant until I started watching some videos of some guys shooting. There's a random guy on YouTube called FPS Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of crazy, but he's, he's, I like watching his videos because I like to hear the different weapons in that locale. I find it educational to hear what some of those things actually sound like. Even if he's not recording with the best mics and the best gear, at least I have a point of reference to what some of those things end up sounding like. Now we're going to blow some shits up. And he's funny. Once again, my Xbox broke. I'm not going to put the whole video to destroying it, but uh, I thought you'd like to see this. Let's start the show. Well, as I say, you know, with, with FPS Russian, that one location he tends to use, 
as not only the forest tree line that he's got, but he's also shooting near a lake. Yeah. Which has a, you know, that's a very distinct sound as well. Yeah. And he gets these big, massive echoes out of just what looks like a straight row of trees on a, on a flat field. And it's something that I've, I've not been able to do yet that I've been looking for. You know, surprisingly, I know that EA did a big shoot where um, they took out a bunch of video cameras and little, like, dictaphone-style digital recorders because they really liked the auto-limiting that they did. Yeah. Um, I know for Battlefield, they were very, very smitten with um, the sound of, like, the YouTube videos from Afghanistan, which had huge reverbs on the gunshot. Yeah. And it was mainly due to that auto-limiting that was a function of those recorders. And to some degree, that's a callback to Heat also, because the, the weapons in Heat had also these giant, giant reverbs on them. Oh, absolutely. Bring on the cheap camera audio. It sometimes sounds really great. <laughs> yeah, the Dice guys you know. loved it, for sure. Again, uh, since I've never done this before, I'm looking to set up a gun session in the near future, and I just was wondering, how many crew members do you guys bring with you? Uh, we already threw this question out to Axel. That mainly depends on what you're going to do and how fast you can run. We rolled out about 400 meter cables for the historical firearms. In uneven terrain, this is quite sporting. In addition, mic stands have to be set up, mics, blimps, and so forth, and every channel has to be checked. We were three audio guys for the historical firearms and two for the guns library. For the big session I mentioned before, we had no less than 60 guys around to get this handled. But I think it is possible to do a 12-channel recording session alone, especially if you are a bit spontaneous to wait for good weather conditions, etc. Frank, you usually work alone. Yeah, I mean, I um, it's usually me and the shooter, and sometimes it's just me and the gun. Uh, so, and uh, every now and then I will have uh, my nephew. You know, if he's he's available, I'll have him come. Or uh, there was one bullet shoot that I did that um, a friend of the people who own the gun shop that we I did the shoot with. He came along for the day and helped run the video cameras and and string the cables and. Uh, for me, yeah, it's basically all me, and it's it's with three video cameras running. You know, we of course, as everybody knows, when we do these sound effects libraries, which is what I basically do all my recording for now, we record these with videos, and I I use two or three cameras because I want it to be a fun experience for the people who see these online, but it's also for me to be able to uh, actually keep my memory of where I put stuff because. Not too many people. I do not take notes. I don't have field notes. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I've tried. I've tried cue lists. I've tried microphone where, where you draw on a piece of paper. And I'm just so excited to get out and record. I'm like a little kid that, I, you know, I don't want to write anything down. I just don't have, <laughs> I just, I don't have the patience for it in the mindset. So I use the video camera stuff as a reference. And that's the hardest thing for me because most of those do not remote start. So you got. I have to run around, start all the cameras, and then if you get a bird or a squirrel, you got to run out and stop everything, and you got to start it again. <laughs> but it's basically just me, and it takes a little while to get set up. But I don't do the four hundred meter cable runs, so um, I don't think I'd make it if I had to do that. So, uh, 
that'd be a tough day. I wish I had some help sometimes, but you know, it's less people for me to worry about when you're around guns. So yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, yeah, you kind of have to go. You know, really keep safety the number one priority. So if it's just me and the shooter, it's very well contained and uh, it takes a little while longer to get your takes done. But if you can do it with two or three people, um, that's the best. But just remember safety. That's right. You know, everybody needs to know what's going on all the time. Charles, so. on a typical shoot, how big is your crew? Well, for me, I usually just go out by myself. Um, but I'm usually a part of a larger group of people. If I'm doing a single-person shoot, which I've done on probably a, a good majority of the things I go and do, um, I'm tending to take out like three 744s, an FR2, and then perhaps another, uh, you know, either using my MacBook with a Deneke front end or uh, like a Zoom or something. And, um, you know, I'll be laying, you know, 400 meters of cable. I take out like a 100-foot snake that I'll, you know, run to my truck where I set up all the gear and then have that drop out where the... But it, it just seems to be a lot easier for me to just keep all of the information that needs to be done in my own head as opposed to necessarily making sure that everything gets done. Right. So it, it just has been a kind of practical matter for me to just be able to go out and do it by myself. Yeah, what I've tended to do is, you know, I've I've never actually done a full-on, like, budgeted paid out expensed shoot most of the shoots that i do are because i live in texas and i have some friends in west texas that have massive armories of guns and i have lots and lots of microphones and so we'll pick a day and we'll all get together and so in those cases you know i've got five or six guys around me that are all essentially weapons experts and so you know we'll get set up and i'll, I'll essentially run them as grips on the front end, so I'll have them setting up mics and running cables before they prep all their weapons. And then when it all comes back, then then I'm the one that just handles the recording. One thing I don't do is I don't run long cables. In lieu of that, I'll tend to run multiple recorders. I'll have four channels set up back behind the shooting area, and then out in, in my reverb areas where I'm you know 100 meters away or something like that, I'll just run another recorder out there and do it that way and sync it all up in post. I've done that. I've done that too. I, I take a couple of my Sonys and we'll stick them out there or I'll take a separate 702 rig. Um, that's actually why I have three 702s instead of one. And I have an FR2 also. A lot of times I separate the recorders and the mics. I haven't done it as much lately. I've actually got snakes, um, like four channel snakes, um, two channel snakes. And I, I use those because I really got tired of running around. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, uh, especially with the Sony stuff, the batteries don't last very long, so you can, you know, all of a sudden you go out there and your PCMD one's shut down or something. And uh, Oh, I don't, I don't find that at all. My, my D50 will run for days. Uh, I'm talking about the PCMD one. That's like 20 minutes tops. Really? The D50 will run, yeah. Yeah, the PCMD one is a battery hog, um, but the D50 is not. Um, and But I use my... PCMD1 with a different mic preamp. So I actually am using that with, I keep that close to me now and I just stick the D50 out there. You got to get um, a PCMM10 that thing's like 200 bucks and it's got ridiculous battery life if you've got a different front end to put in front of it. Yeah, I have the Sony XLR1 um, preamp unit that I bought with my PCMD1 at the time oh, yeah. and it's actually a really great preamp. It's all discreet and it's got limiters. and So I use that, but... Um, 
Yeah, I, I try to, I'm, I'm with Charles on that. It's really a lot, it is really easier to do it with just yourself. Yeah. And if you have some people there that can help. My shooter helps me pack up and coil cables and stuff afterwards, and which is really, really sweet of him to do, so. Uh, so we mentioned safety before. Let's figure out what Axel had to say with regards to safety. First thing, get an insurance for your equipment. A ricochet got straight through one blimp during our first session, luckily not hitting the microphone inside. Anyway, this is expensive enough without a good insurance covering these things. Get a shooter who knows about safety rules and who can brief everyone around. Some basic rules never ever get in front of the shooter unless he declares the range as cold or the weapons as safe. Always talk to the guy with the gun before doing something like replacing mics or so, so that he's aware of what is going on in front of him. I think you just need to keep in mind that those things are really powerful and no toys. The rest should be common sense and good communication. I'll be the proxy for Watson again. Uh, what he said for his safety precautions is he will only bring along an experienced shooter. He, he knows some people like to just bring the guns and have an inexperienced shooter, but he doesn't think that works because people start freaking out and you need to have a trusted shooter. He also says during the recording, all non-shooters must stand at least 20 feet behind the firing line and they always bring along safety glasses and enough earplugs and earmuffs for all because safety is always the priority. Charles, how do you approach safety? Well, for the shoots I do are usually like military weapons and stuff. So I'm using prop houses and, you know, uh, military contractors for my shooters. So to that degree, everybody is really well accustomed to gun safety. Um, I also try to avoid having extraneous people on site. Um, one of the things when we were talking about locations that I think is actually, a, at least in my opinion, very, very substantially serious is range security. Because you don't want people coming onto your range without you knowing it. And in some cases, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've got a bunch of machine guns, for instance, you don't know what kind of people might be drawn to that kind of thing. So, I mean, there is an actual real security risk that comes with that outside of just basically people not getting injured on site. In a lot of instances, depending on the client, I'll actually hire a concierge, or what I call a concierge, but he's basically a arms coordinator who will actually do all of the shooter directions for me so I can concentrate as well just simply on the recording process. And I find that actually to be a bigger help than having, you know, recordist help. Uh, that's, you know, my assistant. And that's just something you get together with him in advance and say, we're going to shoot these weapons, we're going to shoot them in this order, and we're going to cover these perspectives, and he coordinates the shooters in that? Right. Cool. Frank, how do you handle safety? Very seriously. Uh, I don't have the same type of safety concerns uh, that Watson or Axel have, because usually it's just me and the shooter but I have the, you know, stay behind the shooter. I pretty much, unless I'm recording just some dude who I hear up in the mountains and I kind of approach him and say, can I record your gun? I always use the same shooter and he is really, really good and very safe. And he always waits for my cue to do anything. We always uh, clear the set when we, we say everything's clear and you can freely move around. He's very skilled in that he puts when he's not using the weapon he doesn't hold it a lot of people stand around you know they'll hold their weapons for 10-15 minutes while you're waiting he always puts them down that's one of the things i noticed after watching all the videos so he is very safe in terms of location um yeah i echo what um charles said and i do i have a 
80 acres up behind me that's a, a development that didn't sell. So it's a great place to record. And uh, I have about four or five neighbors that are all within a couple hundred meters of my house. So they have dogs. So I, I usually call them when I'm ever doing loud stuff because I don't want their dogs to panic. I'm not worried about the dog barking, but I'm actually worried about freaking the dog out, especially during explosions. Because, I mean, I do explosions in my front yard, so I call all the neighbors. <laughs> I know, it kind of sounds weird, huh? But <laughs> So um, I call all the neighbors and just let them know, you know, I'm going to make some loud booms today. And they're like, oh, go for it. And I had one neighbor said, I'm going out to lunch. I'll take the dog off the property for an hour or so because um, he doesn't like the sound. Yeah, my dog would freak out too. You know, a lot of people don't understand, you know, these loud sounds freak the animals out. They do. You know, and so... Um, yeah, and insurance is key. And uh, I usually, you know, tell people that they're, if they are going to come, they're at, you know, they come out at their own risk. I have insurance, but it really is you have to make it clear that you can have someone not come just by telling them, you know, whatever happens to you, I'm not responsible for. And they usually say, okay, I won't go. But it's, I, I, I think it's just not good to have a lot of people that you don't need with you. Yeah, agreed. It just you don't have to worry about them because I'm always worried. I'm whenever I do something like that, I'm always you know, is a stray bullet gonna go somewhere or is something gonna happen? So, yeah. Another thing that I would say is for recordists who aren't experienced with weapons, I include myself amongst that. I've only actually shot a gun a dozen times in my life, something like that. You have to remember that just because somebody owns a gun doesn't mean that they are responsible and any good with it. You really do have to kind of judge your friends by that standard. You always have to remember that whether anyone says it's unloaded or not, or safe or not, always treat a gun like it's loaded. Never, ever have a gun aimed at you for any reason, ever. And never fire rounds out into the world. Always have a target. You know, you have to have some place for those rounds to stop. Because if you fire them out in the world, it's not like a laser beam. It doesn't just go into space. You know, they arc and they come back down. Actually, it... I got to tell you, it really is quite fun shooting into space. I mean, I didn't do it at the cliffs, but we were at the cliffs where the closest house or anything was 20 miles away. Okay. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the targets we were shooting at were were um, 6,200 feet away. Whew. Yeah, that's over a mile. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's actually kind of fun, you know? I mean, four seconds later, seeing the bullet hit a little pond, you know, a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I just wanted to, it is kind of fun shooting at something a mile downrange. It's something that so. we were very careful with. You know, we were a little more loosey-goosey with things on some of our shoots. You know, to Charles's point, we didn't have range security on one of my later shoots. And so we're out there shooting guns on a private hunting lease, right? But this is a hunting lease that is leased out to multiple people. There's one person that owns the land and he collects money from, you know, from this family and from that family and from that family and that family. And any of them have access to the lease at any point. And so on one of the days that we were shooting, we were out there shooting and, um, and someone else was on the range with us. And, you know, we were not shooting very far. We were shooting into a cliff, you know, a hundred yards in front of us or something like that. So we weren't sending any rounds anyplace crazy. But yeah, it was not range secure. It ended up working out because they brought all their guns and we shot and recorded all their guns too. But it's definitely one of those situations where when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you do have to kind of be aware of who else has access to the property you're on. 
Yes. Definitely a thing to stay focused on. And just listening as an outsider, it seems like the two keys are awareness, general awareness of the project and space as a whole, and then communication with all of the team members, not not even just the ones that are on the shoot, but the ones that are helping you put it together. Yeah, exactly. And fundamentally, keep your crew to a minimum if you can. Beyond safety, is there any special equipment that you guys use when you're doing gun records? I'll tell you what, I've got an Axel answer to that. Here's what Axel says. For guns, a carpet or a big sheet is definitely needed for the shooting position to prevent step sounds of the shooter and bullet casting drop sounds. It is also good to have a clean ground to lay the weapons down on. Enough battery power, extra cables, additional microphones if some don't sound right. Probably most important, duct tape. So everything you would need on other multi-channel recording sessions. He may mean gaff tape instead of duct tape. Uh, one might think. Who knows what they have in Germany? Zip ties. <laughs> Zip ties. Charles, anything kind of non-standard, non-audio that you bring out there? Well, I mean, it, since I do so much work in the desert, I kind of frame everything on that, which is, you know, bringing out plenty of water, sun cover, jackets. Um, you just don't know how long you're going to necessarily be out and how cold or how hot it might be. Sunscreen is an obvious thing to think of. Yep. It's just one of those things where, you know, if you're that far out in the world, you want to have anything you might really need within a 24-hour period with you, whether that be, you know, some sort of food stuff that don't need to be refrigerated or, you know, anything else. I think I'm probably the only person who does it, but on many shoots, uh, we actually take a hired medic out with us, and we've had to use them. Really? There was one shoot we did for, I think, Killzone 3, where Mario Lavin brought his team out from Amsterdam, and it was in the middle of the summer in the Nevada desert, and we actually had one of the people have to get IV fluids because they got severely dehydrated. Yeah, that's crazy. People forget sometimes that when you go on a shoot, on a serious shoot with multiple weapons and, you know, multiple mics, you're going to be out there all day. And so... Yeah, I basically treat it the same way. I treat it like you're you're going on a camping trip, minus the tent, you know? So bring everything that you would need for a full-on camping trip. And I made the mistake about the sunscreen, though. <laughs> I've done that a couple times. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're out there all day in the sun. Yeah, I mean, I, I've spent all day like you guys, but I've also spent uh, maybe two hours. I mean, sometimes that Tommy gun shoot was three hours. It was so cold that day, and that's that weapon was up for auction. And it really wasn't supposed to be shot, so we had to do it very quickly and get the gun back into the shop uh, because it wasn't really supposed to be taken out. It had paperwork, but it was still, it belonged to the, um, I can't remember, the big appliance maker or whatever, and uh, had to take out for a short time. I would say for me, one of the most important things that I need to bring on a full day shoot is a stool. (laughs) Yeah, tables and chairs, seriously. Yeah, you know, I, I tried the table thing for a while, and sometimes I'll just throw a blanket in the ground and, and throw it on the ground and pretend like I'm at the beach, you know. Something to sit on, because if you're in a place where you can't sit and you're doing all that work, you got to give your legs a break, because it can be long days. I mean, I know um, on Charles' shoots, he, he's explained to me that he's he's out in the sun, literally, for, you know, he's up at dawn and back after dusk, so yeah. it's a long day. That, that's how mine are as well, because I have to travel to get to my range where I have access to, and it's a five-hour drive. Oh, yeah. See, that's that's half your day right there. Yeah. And I know for me, if I were doing that, I would drive the five hours the night prior and be on location before sunrise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because the moment the sun goes down, you're done. Oh, yeah. 
you have to pack up as the sun starts hitting up. Because if it gets dark and you're out in the middle of nowhere and your gear's not packed up, you're done. You know, you're in bad shape. Yeah, see, what I have here is I actually have, um, especially during the, the best time of year to record, which is like October through April, which is, it gets cold here at three in the afternoon. I mean, it can be an October day and you wake up and it's sun is out and you got nice 45, 50 degree weather. And then by three o'clock, you can't call your cables because they're like stiff. A lot of times I like to get done by three thirty, four o'clock just because of the temperature. You know, it's getting way below freezing at that point. And uh, watching a shooter load a gun with freezing fingers is actually pretty interesting. <laughs> it's hard for them. I believe you know? it. Yeah. Kind of going back to the audio realm of it, this is not a question that we asked Axel or Watson, but I'd love to get your opinion on this. Not with regards to safety or, or any of that, but with regards to actually making the recording. What are the common mistakes that you feel people would make that they should be on the lookout to avoid when it comes to recording loud concussive weapons. Charles, what do you think? Um, you know, it's funny, it kind of goes back to the whole notion of, you know, going out and trying to get the Hollywood sound. I think it's very attractive sometimes to drive the mic preamps hotter than you should. Because, you know, when you're in the field, you're listening to headphones, and usually when you, you get all that compression happening, you've got essentially multiple stages of limiting occurring. You know, you've got the, the mic preamps limiters, and then you've got, you know, if you're using the sound devices stuff, you've got the headphone limiters. And you, I just don't think you have a, a really good assessment of what you're getting. So I know for me, what I'll tend to do is I'll actually use like a 302 or something and set up the mic pre's with that, with the headphones plugged into the mic pre itself, which doesn't have limiting, get what I think is a good signal-to-noise ratio off of it and then feed that into the 744 and then essentially take the headphones up to nearly full volume where I'm actually having their limiters kick in, which kind of gives you an idea of what L1's going to do to the recordings after the fact. Right. But you do tend to record with your limiters switched on? Oh, absolutely. I've seen advice, and I've tried it once or twice, to record with your limiters switched off, specifically because of what some of the limiters do when they engage to the low end. And sometimes a little bit of digital clipping ends up being less damaging to that hard transient than the sound of a limiter engaging and disengaging would be. It's a tricky thing, right? You're talking about a signal that's asking to be limited at some point. Well, I mean, the way I like to describe it to people is you know, you've got essentially a source that's running at about 160 dB from you know, peak to not being able to be heard. Right. And no microphone is going to really give you an effective window of volume within or, or greater than about 65 dB. So it's a matter of really trying to you know, choose what, what microphone is going to work for the, the 65 dB of that 160 that you want it to capture. So, you know, if you want to get the stuff that's, you know, say, below 100 dB, you're going to actually have to have the limiters or you're going to have to have the microphone in a far enough way position where the transient's not going to overshoot, say, 110 dB. Right. But, I mean, I think that's one of the things I was saying, though. There's a lot of recordists who will really hit the front end of their recorders hard to get that kind of saturation that increases the bass response on a signal. And in more than 50% of the cases, they'll walk away with garbage recordings that are just essentially overbaked, as I think John Fasol uses the term to describe, you know, when the, the preamps are just 
crushed, and you, you essentially have something that you really have no definition in the recording. Yep. Um, how do you guys handle monitoring? I usually don't. I usually have double layers of hearing protection on. Yeah. So <laughs> so I don't actually listen to my stuff as it's being recorded. You just listen to playback? Um, yeah, we, we'll do five or six test shots, and I'll be adjusting the gains, and I'll listen listen back. And um, I'm with Charles on that. I used to hit my limiters pretty hard, and then I really started backing off lately. And um, I actually started using um, pads on my 8040s. They have that got the little Sennheiser um, filter pad unit. They're pricey, but I find that on explosions and close-up guns, they really come in handy. And they can still hit your limiter a little bit, but I tend to use those. And I also, it keeps the, the, the subsonic stuff from hitting the 702. Because uh, when you have the wide frequency range microphones, I mean, they, you know, it's actually recording 10 hertz. I mean, I, I throw these recordings up on a scope and I can actually see all this stuff down there. And that'll just blow a preamp right up, in my opinion. I could be wrong. I'm no scientist in this. But I'm actually starting to record a lot lower now and not hitting my limiters as much because there's so much you can do after the fact now. And we have this huge dynamic range. And when you have microphones that a lot of my mics can take 142 dB worth of volume. So they handle it just fine, but the 702 doesn't. So I'll, I'll do pad on a lot of stuff if it's very close. And uh, I don't monitor. I have that type of hearing that the coffee grinder sets me off. I mean, it just, <laughs> it's one of the most aggravating sounds. It seems so loud. So I have that sensitive hearing syndrome. So I have actually earplugs in plus gun muffs when I'm recording. And the earplugs stay in all the time just in case some sound happens, you know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much impossible to monitor the weapon as it's recording usually. But I do find it important to hear some playback, especially after the first couple of shots. It's really hard to get your your headphones to do anything that doesn't just sound like a pop cap, though, if you're cutting it right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people know guns are loud, but I've really learned after I started recording a lot of them, they're really loud. Yeah. I mean, they're not <laughs> something you really want to be exposed to yeah. all the time. So, I mean, the first time I recorded the M60, I, you know, I stood like 15 feet away from it. What a mistake. I mean, the first time he, he did that, I was, it almost knocked me over because I, I didn't expect it. So um, it's hard to monitor. I mean, I wish I had like a remote truck. I think that's what I really would like to have where you could be inside a truck, you know, like when they're recording a concert. Nice. Don't you think that'd be cool? Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I actually do listen to headphones when I record. One of the reasons I bring a 100-foot snake out is so that I can actually move my vehicle where I park all of my gear 100 feet away from the shooting position. So it actually, you know, the one thing I'm most concerned with is removing the bass transient that comes acoustically from the weapon so that I'm not, like, thinking I'm getting a great recording because I'm feeling it in my chest as opposed to what I'm hearing on my headphones. So, you know, it, it gives significant attenuation, obviously, at that distance. Do you actually get in your car? Uh, no, I have a, a Toyota 4Runner. So I'll actually open the back liftgate and have all the machines in the back bed of it. And then I have a little stool that I sit at, and I'll be controlling all the different machines that way. That's cool. So it works out really good. So it's like a 4x4 four four desk. <laughs> it, kind of, yeah, actually. It's like a hatchback with recorders. 
It's it's great, and especially if it rains, I can just basically close the hatchback, and you know, none of the recording gear has to be subject to the weather. So yeah, that's a very nice feature. I actually had that happen where it started to rain on the M60 shoot, and I had to grab all the microphones and I put them underneath the hatch. I have one of the same type of hatches you do, Charles. And actually, instead of running out and grabbing the microphones and dismantling them, I just brought them all underneath and stuck them under the hatch, mm-hmm. and it worked. Kept them dry. It's a very nice thing. Charles, uh, I was wondering if you could talk for a moment about your two libraries that you released recently and uh, the thought process behind them and the charity aspect of them. As far as the libraries go, it was kind of interesting. I've been kind of civic-minded for a long time, and I thought Amnesty International is a very big cause for me as well as Doctors Without Borders. And I just thought, okay, well, you know, we do all these games and stuff that have this content. And, you know, I do a lot of design work for films and stuff, so people think that, I guess, my stuff can sometimes be worth something. So, in essence, I wanted to make a vehicle where people could essentially donate to these causes, which I think were doing really important things. And the libraries themselves were kind of like a thank you gift. So it wasn't so much that, or at least my intention wasn't so much that people would be going out and buying the libraries themselves, but that they would essentially be moved by the causes, and then essentially they would get the libraries simply as a thank you. Do the donations get divided equally between your, I think I guess you've got four causes there? Yes, they do. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things where basically the, the deal is set up in perpetuity, so I don't really see anything at all and, and never will from these particular libraries as long as Sound Dogs continues to sell them. And just for the people out there who aren't quite sure what we're talking about, if you go to sounddogs.com, uh, you can find Sounds of Modern Conflict, Small Arms of the East and West, and so Volume 1 is U.S. slash NATO Infantry Small Arms Sound Effects. It's 19 sound effects at 24 bits, 96K. Some are in 5.1. They actually, the, the way that the libraries are set up is they're 5.1, 96K, but they also come in 48K versions of 5.1 and stereo versions and mono versions of both 96K and 48K. Okay. So, yeah, so there's volume one and then volume two, which is Russian small arm sound effects. Correct. So uh, we encourage everyone to go out and pick those up. And what you're counting as one sound effect is one weapon in one perspective, but you've got multiple rounds going, is that correct? Pretty much. Frank, do you want to uh, tell us about some of the gun and bullet-related libraries you have available through the recordist.com? Sure. I have um, a few gun libraries available now. I've got the M60 machine gun. I have the Tommy gun, the Thompson. It's a 1928-21 with a 28 overstamp. And it was the real. It was the real deal. It was a, a navy weapon that had made it into the police departments throughout the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then it was in a private collection. And then I have a Foley library of rifle sounds. And oh, I have a toy gun library too. Believe it or not. So I've got one that's just some toy guns. I have uh, explosions. Actually, explosives library of explosions and. Uh, raw processed and designed stuff that I recorded here. And I have a bullet library of just bullet ricochets and impacts and passbys. And that's what's currently available. And uh, I also have some others in the works that have taken me a lot longer than I thought to get done. So uh, I'll surprise you someday this year. Cool. When I release those, uh, one of them is a massive undertaking, and uh, it's 
going to take me a long time to finish. So, well, not that long. Is it going to say ultimate? It's no, uh, the ultimate is ultimate's retired. <laughs> the ultimate's, I mean, I, I do sequels, you know, but there's not going to be any new ultimate because it was really weird. I get, I get strange emails from people and I got quite a few emails that they said the title says ultimate, but there's not everything I want is in there. <laughs> and it was kind of weird. Well, they had the impression that because, you know, it's the ultimate, you know, the ultimate right. collection. Well, I mean, it, it almost just, I use the word ultimate because it just had this ring to it when I put uh, the first library out. So it basically had to do with it. It's the ultimate recordist library. In other words, it's so much bigger than my other ones. That's kind of how it came about. So now I'm trying to come up with other themes. Cool. You know. Um, but maybe someday there'll be a new ultimate, but, uh, I highly doubt it. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you guys a little bit about the post process on these. Once you come back from the field and you've got your recordings and, you, and you've loaded them into your editor, what kind of things are you doing to prepare them for use, whether in a film or a video game? Charles, why don't you go first? Um, usually I'll do just the simple mastering and synchronization of any of the material. I usually don't do a whole bunch of kind of specific EQ or dynamics treatments to them because I want to be able to have the flexibility to go back and do the stuff later. I mean, sometimes if I have a particular, I mean, I, I did a set for my own usage of, you know, designed handguns and rifles for like, you know, just quick temp jobs or something, you know, for films or whatnot, where I could, you know, just get a single clip. It was going to be enough to do a, a good handgun sound for a movie, for instance. If Normally that would be something that, you know, I'd craft with multiple layers and stuff. But sometimes when you just need something really fast, it's like, okay, well, that has everything I need and I'll grab that clip. But typically I'll, I'll not do designed to the original elements beyond just simply, you know, making them in sync with other channels that might have been a part of that particular shoot. And you said you don't do any kind of compression or limiting, you just you just let them be full range? Oh yeah. We did an episode a couple a couple episodes back where we were discussing that with Paul Verostek and that's something that Dustin said was very important to him as a mixer. Yeah, I, I like getting those types of elements uh, for the exact reason that Charles said, because I can do all those things later. And I can do all those things, you know, that fits the context of the space I'm using it, which may or may not be the context in which Charles recorded them. So get, having that flexibility to use, reuse, reapplicate those sounds is, is very important to me as a mixer. And for me, it was something I struggled a little bit with because I felt like I did want to, I guess, prep them a little bit on the front end to make them a little easier to spot quickly. For instance, is where I'm moving quickly. Frank, what do you think? I kind of have a different application because I'm actually... Yeah, you have less context. You're, you have to be broader. Well, yeah, actually, it's kind of weird because uh, I have to make my stuff uh, available. So for, yeah, very broad range of people. So people like Charles who want to, if he's working on a film, he's going to want the M60, like the, the separated raw tracks. And then there's other people, I have lots of other people I've talked to who, who like to have just a beefy machine gun sound that they need to pop in somewhere um, really quick. It's either a TV or, or a video game deadlines. So I'm starting to incorporate more of that into my libraries. Initially, when I did my libraries, they were, they were fairly um, mastered, but not like compressed or over-limited, um, maybe sometimes on purpose, but... You know, there. I try to give people some clean sounds. I mean, if there's 
a little bird chirpy in, in the tail, I will do my best to get rid of it or leave it in and hope nobody notices it. So, you know, if it doesn't destroy the sound, but guns, are, people are very particular about their guns and they have different applications. I've done lots of games and I know I like to have just great source material and you're working on one gun for five hours, just one shot, right? So you want to have all the elements and be able to do what you want to it. And then I've done things where I've had to do cinematics where I just need a bunch of, you know, gunfire I need to place in the cinematic. And I would rather have stuff that's fairly done for that source. So I try to give people as many options as I can. So like the M60, you get the raw material, which... It is basically raw. I kind of level match some things here and there. And then you get processed and designed. It's a tough call. Yeah, I always I find it tricky because because guns are so dynamic. And I guess to some degree it's been a little bit of the lack of experience on my side on the recording side. If you record them in a big, thick, robust way, they probably need a little less work than what some of my first gun shoots have needed. And that's why I bring a lot of mics. Yeah, they're, they're not easy to record. I mean, it took me a while to get the hang of it. I used to just take a Sunday morning and go out in the yard with four microphones in my Mossberg and just, like, shoot and, and try to find out where the sweet spot was. And I had no idea what I was doing. This was like, three or four years ago. So I'm fairly new at this, and um, I've learned a lot. It's really easy to learn because you can easily spot a really bad gun recording. It's pretty easy. Especially when you've done it yourself. What's your, uh, what's your tip? How, how can you tell? Because it sounds oh. like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you can't do anything with it. You can, you can try limiting. You can try compression. You can try all sorts of stuff where you uh, transient enhancement, whatever you want. And it just still doesn't work. I mean, I, I have about 10 guns that I did in 2008 and 2009 that I just I go back and I listen to them, try to master them, and try to get something out of them. And I can't. Because I had no idea what I was doing. They just didn't work. And where I was, there was a location. And, but now I've figured out at least a few things. So I at least have a high percentage of getting something usable. And the more microphones you have, the better chance you have of getting at least, you know, six or eight out of your 10 or 12 tracks that are fairly decent. Yeah. It's funny how experience plays into it. How every single shoot, you learn so much about what you did wrong on the last shoot. And you're able to correct that happened to me with the M60, and of course, it was like a chance of the lifetime, you know, to go out and record it. And I went out the first time, and I was really nervous, and I kind of, I was a little far away from it. And after I was done, I brought it back, and, and I said, well, that just, you know, I'm happy with it, but it just didn't, you know, I should have taken the time to do some stuff closer. But we were doing other things that day, too, so we only had a limited amount of time. Real quickly, all I can tell you is, I called them back up and said, can we go out again? They're like, oh, sure. I mean... They just can't wait to go fire this thing. I mean, they, they just they just love it. So we went out again, and this time I went a lot closer in and kept the further ones out. And I got a better, I think I got better recordings the second time. Yeah. So I was fortunate to get a second shot with the M60. So uh, I'm a lucky guy sometimes. Charles, what do you think about the role experience plays when you're moving through the process of learning how to record guns? Well, I think experience comes into play pretty much learning how to record just about anything, um, whether it's cars or motorcycles or guns or airplanes or, you know, pretty much whatever subject it is. Um, you figure out which mics kind of work better and give you the sound that you're looking for. 
Um, you might have favorite mics that just don't work at all um, for that application. I, I mean, I, if somebody had said, oh, yeah, well, you know, you're going to find that you know, putting a 416 six inches from the ejection port on a machine gun is going to be a good sound, instinctively I would have laughed at them. Uh, it, it would have seemed like an absurdity, but right. that's what I do. So, you know, it, 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 sound, it gives me a sound angle that has a very distinct quality to it that, you know, it seems that my clients like, so I tend to do it again and again. When you guys are looking at recordings of guns in context, when you're looking at them in films, what are the types of films that you can point at that you can say, man, that's really good source material. Those are really good recordings in that film. What kind of films do you like for gun recordings? Frank, do you want to go or do you need to go? Oh, I'm just trying to think of some movies. I watch so many. You got you guys go first. I'll tell you a couple that that come to my own mind. Everyone goes to Heat, and I think the thing about the guns in Heat is the, how reverberant they are. There's just so much tail to those guns. But another film that's got just very distinctive guns to me is Ninja Assassin. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. It wasn't a huge film, but man, they just, they crafted the mix in such a way that they left all this room for this low end. And even when they had these big, busy gun battles, the guns were just huge and thumpy and they weren't real blasty and they weren't real mid-rangey. It was just a very unique sound for me on that one. I really, really dug the design all the way through that one. And then recently, I really loved The Town and Inception. I just loved what the gun sounded like in those two. Shut the engine off now! Put your hands in the... For me, probably my two faves would be Heat, which, ironically, just about all of the guns, especially in the um, bank shootout, were all production audio, <laughs> which wow. is, I think, recorded by, I want to say Mark Ulano, if that might be mistake. Saving Private Ryan, you know, has some great gun right. sounds. I mean, I think that basically the, the Thompson sound that Tom Hanks has in that is is truly iconic. Heavy weapon, a double A below. I ain't got a shot. Pincer move, Parker. Targets eight o'clock low. God grant me strength. Come <laughs> on. 
other gun, gun movies, I mean, Terminator 2, I, I'm a huge fan of. Hasta la vista, baby. You know, I thought the Gary Rodson did, you know, really, really neat design work on that. And I think Ken Johnson actually recorded some of those weapons. It's not hard to get good gun sounds. Um, I mean, you know, I thought Total Recall, we did we did some really neat sounds for the Chris Pives and that last year. What is it? What's wrong? Yeah. Yank that needle out before it takes. Why here? Whoa, whoa! Federal police! On your feet! Now! This is all a mistake. I'm nobody. Hands on your head! Now! Dustin, what stands out to you, man? Heat, of course. I think for me, though, Heat was more just the the way that the they approached the mix by not putting music into that scene because that's such an obvious choice, and most movies do that, you know? And I think allowing the guns to kind of be the stars of that moment I think made all the difference in the world for that scene. I think if you put music in there, even if the guns sounded great, it's totally different film, totally different scene. Uh, I was thinking of Saving Private Ryan, of course, and then one that I saw recently was uh, Looper, and those kind of sawed-off shotguns that they have sounded sounded pretty great, I thought. The first time that that thing was fired, I was, I was into that. The movie uh, Zero Dark Thirty does a similar thing uh, where the raid scene at the end of it there's no music and the guns it's really tense scene and when there isn't constant gunfire it's only every once in a while but each gunshot you feel it and it really helps the story because each gunshot pierces through so much that you feel the uh, the weight of what's happening with each shot and I thought that was done really well with regards to arrangement I guess and, and lack of music no Country for Old Men, also killer. The suppressed shotgun that Shigur had was just awesome sounding to me. Very unique sounding. Yeah, very much so. I love that. I mean, I think it's, it's very easy when you're on the stage to want to shove as much audio as you can into every scene, you know, and it's difficult to pull back and to let things kind of have their moment in the sun. I think that was one of my biggest problems with uh, Inception or the latest Batman movie was that there's so much goddamn music. Yeah. And the music was wonderful, but I think it, honestly, it lost me in in points. I, it was overwhelming. I, I like it when when films have room to breathe. And, and, you know, you get to show off the skills of people like Frank and, and Charles. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's funny. You brought up Looper. I really like that one, too. And, of course, there's not a lot of guns in that. There's just that main one and a couple other things. And um, things that just popped into my head while you were talking is um, uh, Cowboys and Aliens. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Yeah, yeah. One of my buddies was in that one. Wouldn't do that if I was you. But that has got a few guns in it, which which I enjoyed. 
Of course, there's the heat and the Saving Private Ryan and the Terminator 2s. I got to tell you, I'm I'm a fan of the first, the sound of the first two Resident Evil movies, and I think I th- really, yeah. I mean, I have I've watched all of them, but I like the sound in those movies. Maybe because I'm in the video game. Movies. I thought the guns were okay in, in that one. They served their purpose. I, it really depends. I don't hold people to certain styles or like a certain single style for whatever. I if it sounds good, I really, and if it if it gets me, and gives me a, a shivers or I just like the cleanliness of it or the dirtiness of it. I just watched all the Die Hard movies in a row couple weeks ago and I got to tell you you know that <laughs> it's kind of weird those movies it span they span a long time and there's lots of guns in there and it was funny because I was just kind of studying you know how the sound evolved over the years and the guns got better and better and better and by the time we got to the uh, third and fourth movie the sound had gotten cleaner and cleaner and cleaner but I actually enjoyed the gun sounds in those movies for some reason throughout um, pretty much. I didn't really like all of the movies, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes I watch a movie just for sound. But I actually, um, Charles mentioned Total Recall. Um, I watched it um, on Blu-ray at the end of last year, and uh, I, I enjoyed the guns in that a lot. Have you guys seen Django Unchained yet? No, I want to. I haven't yet, unfortunately. I've seen it. It's got very kind of boomy guns, which surprised me considering how dense the uh, the gunfights were. They were very kind of thick. I, I dug them, but they were different sounding. They were they were not blasty at all, which was a different choice than than I was expecting them to make, I guess. And I know they did a lot of IRs out in the actual locations there in those canyons too. I think we have a lot of younger listeners uh, that are kind of just getting started. And I was curious for Charles and Frank, if they had any kind of tips or resources or any pointers on how people can get started in weapons recording, because it's, it's not the most accessible thing to do, I think. So I was curious if you had any, any wise sage advice for newcomers to weapons. I would say if you want to just record guns, I think that's great, but record everything because by the time you get, if you're just starting out, by the time you get to guns, I wouldn't suggest going right into guns. I would just record as much as you can. Learn about dynamic range. Learn about what your mics can do, what they can't do. Experiment on your own. Before I started really getting into recording loud noises, I used to make my own loud noises and process them. I used to take balloons and pop them, or you know, if you have access to fireworks or whatever and try to see if you can make a small sound big because that's basically what you're going to do with the guns and whether that's by microphone placement or by processing afterwards. So, I think the balloon idea is genius cuz you can just do that all day. Yeah, you can just yeah, and you can go buy it in a store and it's not, you know, illegal. Well, it probably will be someday, but cuz <laughs> people don't, are going to, you know, not want balloons around. But try to make your loud transients and have fun with them and learn about loudness. I had to learn about how loud stuff reacts and how microphones react to loud stuff. And both Charles and I, we had to learn way back in the 8 and 12-bit days, which was even harder. So 
the people nowadays, they have much better gear and they can get really good results experimenting with stuff. Just have a good time. And if you really want to do it, just keep at it and be very, very careful. You know, don't call your friends and say, hey, you know, let's go gun recording. You know, um, it's serious. I did that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but you're 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 an experienced audio person. True. Yeah. He, I was going to. He kind of mentioned, you know, younger people who are just getting in. Yeah. You know, um, it's it, you know, it's not a walk in the park, and Charles probably has way more sessions where he was probably like dehydrated and sunburned and and concentrating and and he's a gun for hire. He's on he's on the clock, so he has to give results. It's not the easiest job to do but if you want to do it keep at it you know frank just said everything so eloquently that there's really very very little i can add i mean i think probably the, the only thing i could think of is that if somebody wants to get into gun recording probably getting an understanding and you know just a functional uh, working knowledge of how guns work and shooting in general independent of recording would probably be a good thing to spend some time doing just so that you, you get to see the kind of mindset that shooting people have and stuff so that when you actually are using them as performing talent, you can kind of negotiate that culture in a manner that, you know, will, will get everybody productive results. But as far as what Frank said, you know, record everything. I mean, you know, there's plenty of stuff to record out there and it's a talent of using your ears and, trying to essentially appreciate whatever physics of the environment you're working in and then using all of that knowledge to make mic choices to be able to get the recording to represent what you want it to. That's great. And he's an amazing recordist. I, I mean, it's like I, I, I cannot even begin to stop fawning over his ridiculous giftedness. Wow. Th thank you, Charles. My God. <laughs> you're, That's like... You, you've heard it all before. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, and you know, just so you know, Charles and I go way back. Nice. I first started. He and I worked on a synthesizer for Emu. That's how we kind of first met at the old Nam shows and trade shows a uh, wow. way long time ago. And yeah, so uh, <laughs> friends for a long time. But thank you. Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> oh, Charles. He didn't just say it. We recorded it. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's on the record. Okay, I definitely, definitely gonna buy you dinner when I come down. To... Well, that would be great. <laughs> Let's talk about the favorite weapons to record. You know, if you get to choose what you're gonna go record, what is it that you'd like to go record? Let's see what Axel has to say. Hmm, good question. I was sitting like three meters behind a Beretta M82 rifle and the shooter fired. I thought I would be knocked over by the air pressure that hit me. This thing is a beast. But concerning the sound, it is just loud. So concerning sound, I am not really sure if I would prefer any. The flintlock we recorded for the historical firearms was pretty impressive with its trigger burn fire sequence. Did Watson have an answer? Yeah. Machine guns and high-power rifles are his favorite weapons to record. To name some, they are the M16 variants, AK-47, 50 caliber M2, and the famous minigun, which fires 50 to 60 rounds per second. So those are Watson's favorites. Yeah, the minigun would be awesome. For me, it's the flintlock musket. I'm on a quest to go find a, a musket. Just because it's such a slow firing mechanism. It's just, it goes, takes forever to actually fire. And it sounds awesome. <laughs> I hope it sounds better than what you just did. It, 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 yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, that was actually good. That sounded like you got a little DC offset in there. <laughs> 
I think uh, for me, anything with the weather be 300 round, I mean, it's it's loud and the environment reacts to it very well. I do like a suppressed 22 because I don't have to wear headphones, but uh, that's, <laughs> that actually makes a really, really cool sound. Um, I got to tell you, I, I love shotguns. You know, uh, yeah. whether you're shooting pellets or a, a slug or some funky, you know, custom type of ammo. Um, I love the sound of a shotgun. Um, so those are my three. Charles, what do you think? Um, I've got two, actually. I'm with Frank and, and really liking the shotguns. My favorite is probably the Franchi Spaz 12 with slugs. The gun itself, I think, is an absolute piece of junk. But for whatever reason, when it's, when you fire it semi-automatic, it just has a really cool clockwork kind of sound to it. And the slug sounds like a tank shell going through the air. So I, I, I always really love to listen to it go down range. The other gun is uh, a little submachine gun that's made in Czechoslovakia called the Scorpion. And um, the thing that's particularly cool about it is that it actually ejects its brass straight up, but it spins. So you get this, like, whirring spin of the cartridge after every shot. I know when I think I was doing the shoot for um, Brink, we had a Scorpion, and that was the first time I'd ever really noticed it. And so we actually put mics up above the gun to get the the cartridge casing going over. That's awesome. Charles, how many shoots have you done? For gun shoots, I think I've got about 40 or so under my belt. Um, I've done, I think, 10 explosives shoots. And then field artillery and things like that as well. Wow. Yeah, explosives is something I would love to give a shot at. Well, you need to go and visit Frank. Yeah, we need to go have some beers, Frank. Yeah, you can just, we can open up the garage door and just walk right out in the field and... Just blow up some snow. And go for it. I have to call the neighbors first, though, because I don't want <laughs> to freak the dogs out. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I want to do more of that. I'm actually working on another explosion library, but this one's bigger and, and better than the other ones. So um, <laughs> we're going to get very far away. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I just want to thank both of you guys for giving your time and your, and your knowledge to this. It's a niche field and it's uh, it's very, it requires a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of experience and you guys are some of the best. And so we really appreciate you guys coming on with us. Yeah, absolutely. As someone who doesn't generally do this type of work, it was a pleasure to have both of you here and to to get the chat with you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I also want to throw out a big thanks to Axel Rohrbach, who recorded his answers ahead of time, and also Watson Wu, who sent in some answers. And just a quick thanks also to Chuck Russum, who couldn't be here but was interested in it, but we couldn't make it work out. We'll get him on a future show. Yeah. Yeah. You guys rock. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates to the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. Thanks to Axel Rohrbach and Watson Wu for participating with the Q&As. And to Charles Mays and Frank Bree for joining us at the roundtable. You can follow the show at The Tonebenders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out on facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at The Tonebenders or email us at dc, timothy or renee at tonebenders.net.